The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey, and joining me today, we have two guests, Bob Mackey. Hello, everybody. How's it going? How you doing, Bob? I'm good. And we have a returning guest came on to talk about that excellent Final Fantasy XII localization feature that he did for us a couple months ago, John Learned. Welcome back. Hey, everybody. How are you? So don't sound so excited, jeez. Oh, I'm psyched. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> exactly. Today we're going to be talking about a lot of things. There's been quite a bit of news. We've got the Bloodborne DLC, which is why I've got you two on the show. And, of course, the Final <clears throat> Fantasy VII Remake news, because there's been quite a bit on that front, actually. So it's worthwhile revisiting it for an update. And we'll wrap up with Nino Kuni sequel news which I think Bob has a few thoughts on that one. So let's get right started with the Final Fantasy VII Remake update. Some interesting things uh, over the weekend during Sony's PlayStation Experience keynote. We got a gameplay trailer, which I cannot say that I was expecting at this early of a date. <laughs> it seems like Square Enix was looking to maybe put to rest some doubts that they were actually going to make this game. Well, I mean, technically, Kingdom Hearts three has a gameplay trailer, so this is a fact. Right. Yes, yeah. Versus thirteen had a gameplay trailer at one point two. But at the same time, like, how long did it take? Well, how long did it take Versus thirteen to even get a gameplay trailer? It took no, several years, right? They had some some sort of um, gameplay trailer, like a Japanese only show, years and years ago, and it was. Kingdom Hearts like combat in, in like a city street, so mm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Is that like two thousand six? Something like that. Yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> God. So yeah, it's not necessarily given that this is anything <laughs> but pre rendered footage, uh proof of concept kind of stuff. And just based on their comments, it kind of sounded like they were going, Well, we're we're still working on a lot of things. We're still coming up with a lot of stuff. So it's not necessarily like this is finished gameplay, but it was it, it was clearly clear that they have something. And not only do they have something, it actually looked pretty good. You know, I, I liked the the style. I liked it, it felt faithful to Final Fantasy VII. What did you guys think? Pop. I'm not sure what to think about it until I'm I'm absolutely positive it is real gameplay. I mean, it, it could be like a mock-up of gameplay. When I whenever I hear like actual gameplay, all I think is like, okay, it's not pre-rendered. That's all that means to me. So I'm I'm a little jaded, I guess, at this point. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Um, I think um, what they've shown to me looks like basically what they've been doing with Final Fantasy 15, like with how Noctis kind of weaves in between small spaces and crawls under rocks. It looks like they took exactly what they were doing from that and just sort of repainted some character assets and, and kind of mocked up a battle scene. I mean, I could be way off base with that, but I, I want it to look something like that personally. I mean, if they're going to do the action RPG route, I think it's probably the, their safest bet was making it probably Kingdom Hearts-like because they already have an idea of how that combat's going to work. But it, until I know for sure that that's it, I'm, I don't want I don't want to seem too skeptical. But I, I guess I'll believe it when they say this is it for real. Yeah, I think it was somebody. I'm, I'm not sure where, but I saw somebody commenting that the cloud model looks a lot like a um, a slightly updated lightning model, <laughs> um, which is why the arms are so skinny. But, I've seen people talking about uh, how this version of Cloud looks emaciated and sickly, which would make sense given the um, the uh, setting and his place in this timeline, I guess. So um, it could yeah, have uh, context, narrative reasons yeah. behind it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense in context. And somebody pointed out that in one of the the real version uh, CGI cutscenes, the one where Cloud is with Eris, that his arms are pretty skinny on that one too. So. They could just be going, trying to be as faithful as possible to the original art style, which 
given where uh, Nomura's art kind of went post Final Fantasy VII, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So a couple of other items. Okay, so we we might as well discuss the battle system right now. Um, I think we we discussed this ages ago. It's obvious that Jeremy was right. <laughs> uh, they were not going with the original turn-based strategy approach. Uh, it made me a little sad that they're not going strictly turn-based, but I understand the impulse to actually update the combat. Right. It, and I, I don't want to discount Jeremy's uh, thoughts and predictions, but I, I feel like with a project of this magnitude they would never go turn-based just because they don't want to scare people away from something that they're probably spending a lot of money on. Yes, mass market is definitely the thing. But the thing that kind of gave me hope was uh, they, in an interview with Famitsu, um, I I think it was Kitase, said that he was going for a much more tactical bent. And he was, and it was not, a hack they were not planning on making it a hack and slash kind of game like Kingdom Hearts or even Dissidia. And that they're implementing the active time battle bar somehow, though they didn't elaborate, which lends further credence to the idea that this is a mock up because oh, yeah. Yeah. you totally didn't see an ATB bar anywhere on that screen. And it looks it looked kind of crisis core ish, if uh if I do say so myself. Um, and it also made me happy that you control um, all three party members, or that you have three members in your party. I assume that two of them are controlled by, by the AI, but you can switch between them. And I'm kind of wondering if, like, you can pause and decide what move you're going to make, um, a la traditional Western RPG. In any case, it's going to be really different, which not necessarily a bad thing. No, I mean, I think Final Fantasy VII was very, mil- very much built around the expectations of an audience in 1997. And the remake is built around the expectations of an audience in 2015 or 2017 or whenever it comes out. It's it just like it's not a straight like you know uh, it's not just a refurbishment. I think it's like a reimagining. Well, we talked about this in a podcast where we deliberately tackled turn-based battles and that kind of thing. And I I don't remember exactly the the kind of consensus that we came to, but. It is disappointing that turn-based, for some reason, like people are allergic to turn-based combat and that is somehow not mass market. Uh, I don't know. I prefer it. <laughs> so. I, I dare say it wasn't even mass market in 1997. And I, and I believe I, I told this anecdote on that episode, but uh, the common takeaway from people that I knew who bought Final Fantasy VII based on the uh, commercials was, you can't even move your guys. That was a common complaint. Like, I can't move my guys. So even in 1997, uh, that defied expectations. So, yeah, it does feel like an incredibly modern move to uh, dispose of that, even though I like turn-based stuff. What are your thoughts, John? No, I agree. I like turn-based stuff a lot, but I, Bob's right. Like, it, was, it took something like a Final Fantasy VII for turn-based combat, I think, to be somewhat mainstream, and, and that those were just the expectations at the time. So... Square's got to make money on this, and if making money means um, making it an action RPG with with real-time combat, then that's the way they're going to do it. Um, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but with the way that they're making it episodic, or at least implying that, like that seems to me that they need to make money off of this pretty quickly for the scope yeah. that they're going for. So if... <laughs> If making combat that way is going to help them kind of achieve that without crippling their company, then that's what they're going to do. Well, they're outsourcing and, the hell out of this thing, too. I'm sure. That yeah. is true. And I, and I totally forget, uh, for, uh, pardon my ignorance, but is this a uh, Tetsuya Nomura uh, production? Oh, it's yes, Nomura he film. is. Okay. He's directing, technically. I, I brought this up on another podcast, so apologies for, again, repeating myself, but I feel like the deal was like, okay, okay you, you can't ship a console game. We figured that out over the past 10 years. Maybe you can ship four smaller games. So I feel like they're working, <laughs> because they can't possibly fire him in any way because of how, you know, Japanese business works. So I think they're, they're... too deep. Yeah, exactly. He's in too deep. So I think they're trying to negotiate on his terms. Like, what can we make this guy commit to in order to actually have a product on the shelves? I... I... Yeah, I agree with that, but I think part of it is, or the bigger part is straight up money. I think Yoichi Wada a couple years ago 
came right out and said, look, if we were to remake this game for a modern console, and this was like during the PS3, Xbox 360 era, this would bankrupt our company for the, the expectations that everybody has. And the only way I think they're going to be able to pull that off is that like they release a, an episode, recoup some of the cost, release another episode. And, and I'm sure Nomura's working pace has a lot to do with that too. But <laughs> I, um, I, I kind of, I, I kind of buy that, but I think it really is tied up in Nomura because I see things like uh, Xenoblade uh, Chronicles X being this like 120 hour masterpiece and I don't think the scope of Final Fantasy VII is really that big compared to some of our modern open-world RPGs. But I, I do think they're being very accommodating of the, the kind of production this is and the talent they're working with. The talent with. involved, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think, hot take time, I really despise the fact that this is going to be episodic. I think, <laughs> I, I, I just, I think it's going to totally break up the flow. Um they're going to pad the hell out of each episode. Like, they might go, okay, well, part one is all in Midgar, and you're going to spend all of your time exploring Midgar, and we're going to, like, add all of these new elements, and it's going to be a bit more open world. I'm like, yeah, fine, okay, but I, 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 I like a good, coherent story, and I'm not sure that it's going to necessarily work in an episodic context is going to really take me out of the flow of the story and not only that it's going to be probably really expensive i mean we're yeah we could be talking about a game that's upwards of over a hundred dollars when you get it all together um and just by taking by having these really defined splits i feel like you're going to like really hurt the sense of you exploring this big world and having this big story, right? Like, even if I play it one after the other, it's, um, it, it, it lose some, it, it feels like it's going to lose something in the translation. It feels like I'm not going to have as much freedom to explore the world. Um, I, I'm just, I'm not seeing it necessarily. Maybe they, they can prove me wrong. Obviously I'll go with an open mind, I, I like their ambition for the game, but I I don't know if I can even be engaged for the time period that they're probably going to be talking about. I mean, this game could be released over the period of like two years. I mean, yeah. who even knows how long this thing is going to take? You know what it reminds me of? I was just thinking. It reminds me of the current OVA system or uh, with anime. Yeah, I was thinking of like the Evangelion remake movies. <laughs> Just for, like, context, um, Gundam Unicorn started in, like, 2011 or 2010, and it didn't finish until, like, last year. That's, like, four years. And each episode was, like, an hour. And it's, like, I I followed along with it, but thinking about, like, the way media is consumed, if, like, that's the route they're going, where it's, like, well, we're going to release an episode, like, every, every year or, like, two episodes a year or something, like... Isn't it a bit much to ask people to follow a single game for like a course of like two years? I, I mean, I mean, we'll I, see, but I totally agree. The last two uh, experiences I had with episodic Final Fantasy games did not go well. It was uh, Final Fantasy IV: The After Years and Final Fantasy Dimensions, and in neither case did I pursue more than the first episode. And yeah, it could I, just be because those episodes weren't very good, but. Um, I, I do feel like they were a little hamstrung by their episodic approach, where it's like, well, we can't give you a full experience, but here's a crappy dungeon you can go through a bunch of times. You know, that'll I be fun, even, right? I can't even lock in long enough to finish a Telltale uh, <laughs> yeah. season, and those were released like one after another. You know, yeah. Uh, but I mean, we'll see. This is this is all expected. Um, I don't mind them taking a new take on the battle system. Uh, the mock-up or whatever the heck that was that they showed at PSX is well it, it looks faithful to the original at least uh it doesn't seem like they're straying too far from the spirit of the original so i guess we'll have to see and also hope that this thing starts kicks off by 2017 uh i have faith i have faith that they're going to get it out for the 20th anniversary <laughs> of final fantasy 7 i really want to see how uh how kate sith or as you should say Ketchi. Yes. Yeah, Ketchi is uh is 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 depicted in this game because that was one of the the goofiest ass things even in 97 like okay so there is a a puppet riding a giant doll 
and that's one of my characters. <laughs> okay. Totally normal. Yeah. I want to see how how they try to make sell that concept with photorealistic graphics, or if they just dispose of it entirely. Nah, I think they'll keep Ketchy around. Because people will like completely throw a fit if they get rid of Ketchy, uh, and they will give uh, him a, like a really strong Irish accent, which I think they've they've done uh, with like the Cydia and things like that. Or I don't know, like at some point, in, like I, I've seen that character with a with, like a strong Irish brogue. <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's not photorealistic; it's heavily stylized, as True. we've already seen in the trailer. But it's and it's more than the paper craft, um, you know, FF seven polygonal models. And second of all, it can't be any weirder than Teddy from Persona 4. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Although so, that, is, that, is, that is a just a drawing and you kind of give that more leeway, I think. Yeah, that's I mean, way more stylized too, like the cel-shaded graphics and the, the sort of anime cutscenes in the Persona games. I think that gives it a little bit more... We can cut Teddy a little bit more slack that way, but when we can see every pore on Barrett's arm, yeah. um, I think she's going to look kind of wacky, but I think this, what we're talking about ultimately is that some of us are going to find that stuff really weird and other people are going to be fine with it, but ultimately somebody is going to be pissed off about this game one way or another. And that, I don't mean to sound very uh, dramatic or contrary in here, but I never really thought this was such a great idea. And now that we're finding out that it's going to be episodic and the combat's gonna be gonna be changed. We're we're like the this is the ground zero for when the uproar really starts. I think. Oh yeah, I I, I played through the game again in 2013 when I was unemployed, and that's when you that's when you play these RPGs again, of course. Right. <laughs> um, and I was just like totally smitten by how uh, they really stuck to these weird ideas that that didn't look or or play out that well in 32-bit uh, graphics, but they still like were interesting and just compelling to watch like you you visit a haunted house and all the crazy things happening in the chocobo races and you know just like all these weird touches that you would never see in a modern final fantasy game that they are just clinging to their kind of 16-bit ideas but interpreting them in a different way yeah, I um, think they were sort of finding their way though I mean, yeah for sure yeah they were making it up as they went along right. I, I totally agree when i played final when i tried to play final fantasy 7 like a decade ago i think the reason that I wanted them to remake it originally was because I thought that even in 2002, it looked really, really rough and hadn't aged well even by then. And so I was like, oh, I really love Final Fantasy VII and I want to experience again, but I want modern graphics. And and I, I, I suppose the only disappointing thing is that whatever they're making is definitely not what I played originally, which fine. Okay. Yeah. Give me something new. It's cool. I think the main thing originally for me in wanting a remake was that I just wanted something that looked a little more modern, but stuck to what was the original. I, I have very conflicting feelings about this project. We, we shall see, um, kind of, it, it it feels appropriate, actually, given that Star Wars is coming out next week, which is another nostalgia project. This is like the <laughs> ultimate nostalgia project right here. Well, the sad, the sad truth is, and this is not an original statement, but we are basically what the baby boomers were in the 90s. We are being placated and pandered to, and we are being reminded of the things that we loved, and now that we have money, we can buy them all over again. So <laughs> the 90s great? have never died. It's like Portlandia up in here. I mean, just look at anime, for God's sake. Like, you have your mass market stuff, and then you've got your... You're, you're basically got a drip feed of nostalgia uh, for people who watched anime in the eight, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Here, have your $100 anime Blu-ray with an hour and a half of content. Uh, enjoy. Well, and check back in six months so you get something new. And it's anyway. true. And even even more mainstream forms of entertainment, like Mister Show, is back, and Mystery Science Theater oh, yeah. is coming back. Like the, this is not exclusive to video games at all. You're totally right. This has been happening for kind of a long time. So yeah. with, the way that we consume media now is totally different than what it was ten years ago. So of course, all that stuff is going to come back to kind of draw on the people that got the money. You know, the post Gen X, I guess, whatever generation you and I are. Everybody falls into, but but in the in the Kickstarter era, it's been kicked into overdrive because now now all the people who like well we couldn't make this before because it wasn't mass market are coming out of the woodwork to be like look come finance your like particular niche 
your very, 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 very narrow niche. And we don't even have to worry about how well it's going to ultimately do because you're going to give us, you're assuming all the risk. You're assuming all the risk by giving us the money ahead of time. It's fine. Yeah, and in and, and an article I wrote today, like I think most of the games that were announced, uh, the surprising games of 2015, like Shenmue 3 mm. and Red Ash and uh, Koji Igarashi's Castlevania Spiritual Successor, they are all drawing off of things that we love to play in the 90s. I didn't even like playing Shenmue in the 90s. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I, I did either, but somebody did, and, and they want to pay for 3. it Shenmue 3, now there's a game that is not coming out. It has to, I think. No, like, it's not. Legally. It's not going to happen. I, I'm... I'm staking. I, I'm. It's not happening. I'm sorry. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, for God's sake. I've been sake, saying that about a Final Fantasy seven remake <laughs> for years, though. I've said this before, but when was the last time Yu Suzuki even made a game? I want to believe. I'm sure that he'll have Shenmue. plenty of help. <laughs> but but the, uh, this is not a Shenmue podcast, and Shenmue is not an RPG. But I, I feel like he is oh, in the position cares? where he is no longer a George Lucas figure that no one can say no to. And that is the best situation for him because people needed to say no to him a lot with Shenmue 1 and 2. All right. We're straying a little far afield here. Uh, There was a bunch of stuff announced at PSX. Um, Lots of good Japanese news, actually. Uh, Yakuza 0 is coming out here. Not really an RPG per se, more of an open world brawler thing with adventure. I started playing uh, Yakuza 5 last night, oh, yeah? and I was reminded, like, yes, Yakuza is an RPG. There are random battles, there are experience points, there are skills. Like, there is there is nothing in this game that isn't an RPG. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, I, t- I totally believe that. That's my argument, and I hope it makes you mad. But they're pretty light. It, they are, but considered. I mean, we call much lesser things RPGs, like Costume Quest and, like, Child of Light. Like, things that are just barely touching that kind of substance. Well, this is the the topic that we've been talking about since literally episode one. What exactly. is an RPG, and does it really matter? Who cares? But it doesn't matter. But I will say, Yakuza is an RPG series for sure. Good news that Yakuza Zero is in fact coming out here. I think a lot of people did not think it would be coming out. Um, a nineteen, uh, uh, it's a Yakuza prequel set in the nineteen eighties, which so it feels like it's doing what Shenmue should have did. <laughs> It, you know, well, like, I mean, Yakuza is basically the spiritual successor to Yakuza uh, uh, to Shenmue, right? I mean, it basically is Shenmue. I've never played a Yakuza game. I can't comment on any. Oh, you so, should totally play it. Yeah, you should totally play Yakuza, John. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's Shenmue, but it's like, what if we gave you thing game like things to do in an open world? Not just like you can appreciate this world just for being open, but in Yakuza, oh. it's like let's give you you know activities and like goals and things like that but what if i like lousy part-time jobs and forklifting <laughs> what if i like getting an allowance for my mother at age 23 <laughs> yeah, or whatever of, yeah <laughs> also nino kuni 2 was announced at psx fairly surprising was it announced already did i miss something I, i'm pretty sure that's no news. i think that was, it was psx it. where it uh, was first uh, revealed or yeah i mean that's surprising uh, surprising a that it exists because I always figured that level five would be like, well, that was an interesting partnership with Ghibli. Uh, did not go as well as we had hoped. We had hoped they had they had obviously hoped to make like a mega hit, and they got a pretty successful game. And more surprising even still that it was revealed here, rather than say at TGS. Am I missing something? I'm under the impression that Nino Kuni did much better in the U.S. on the PS3 than it did. Yeah, in same Japan. here. It got a greatest hits re-release. Um, we never even saw the, the DS version in the U.S., so I'm I'm not too shocked about this. Um, I like the Final Fantasy VII remake. I just hope it's good, but um, we I don't think we should be really too surprised that something like this may have crept around the corner eventually. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I recently wrote about it today, and I got a ton of comments, which I love just reading. Even people disagree with me. But I feel like the, the PS3 game was hamstrung because it was really um, a little a little too based on the DS game. And, and they ported over a lot of uh, elements and, and systems that didn't really make sense on a console. So I feel like breaking free from that baggage will make the sequel better, I hope. And I think Level 5 is much better at making RPGs. Like, Yokai Watch feels like... It corrects a lot of mistakes that Nino Kuni made because Nino Kuni was a very similar game in that it was a, a very much Pokemon 
Pokemon-ish experience where you're collecting monsters and leveling them up and, you know, going for the ones you want. And I feel like you okay watch it then in a much better way and a much more satisfying way. Level 5's always been sort of a company that chases, the, like, the one mechanic that's popular. And I think Nino Kuni, the first Nino Kuni really fell into that with, because Pokemon was still a pretty big thing at the time. And, you know, if you look back at their catalog, like, White Knight Chronicles is basically just a, a monster hunter on PS3. That's right. And uh, Dark Cloud was called the Zelda Killer. But, the Zelda Killer. But, but yeah. not by Level 5. I think uh, play, PSM, PlayStation Magazine, yeah, called, it called it that. media called it And it's, like, as it's, it's much as a Zelda game as it is, like, about you're being a steamboat captain. But yeah. <laughs> the, um, I, I'm really hoping that they sort of ditch that monster collecting mechanic for the second one, to be honest with you. I, I like Level 5 when they they do their own thing and they just build interesting RPGs on their own. So I'm really hoping it, it doesn't have that, that recruiting. And if it does, I at least just hope it's better than what it was the first time around. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that they found their, they found that in Yokai watch, like the perfect, well, not perfect, but their best interpretation of that, which I, I assume has improved over the sequels that we haven't gotten. But in Nino Kuni, that was the, the most, uh, uh, it was the worst part of that game just because it necessitated so much grinding, so much wasted time that um, it really ruined the game for me. What was the actual mechanic in the original Nino Kuni? Well, you would. Um, it had a battle system that was somewhat action based, but it was still, still random. In, or, no, they weren't even random encounters. I'm sorry, but there was just a slim. They were essentially could, random because you really couldn't avoid an enemy on the world map coming after yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but like you always, there's a random chance you could recruit whatever monsters you just fought kind of thing. Um, so it wasn't really too deep, but there weren't really a whole lot of skills or other factors that could sort of, um, boost the recruitment rate. So let's say you're trying to recruit, um, really rare stuff or really difficult monsters. You're, you're sitting there for hours just banging your head against the wall. Yeah, it's like, it's like that in Yokai Watch too, unfortunately. But really? you can uh, you can game the system a little bit. Also in Nino Kuni, I believe to level up your monsters or to increase their skills, you'd have to like feed them no. through a through a, like a pet mini game. And that took so you, forever. Yeah, you had to, you had to feed them like one item at a time and watch the entire animation play out over. Like it would be like I would be in that that menu for upwards of fifteen minutes just feeding my monsters and thinking like this is not fun. Why can't I feed you like more than one item at once? I don't need to see you eat the ice cream. I believe it. <laughs> I believe you're doing that. Nino Kuni really seemed to touch a nerve here in the U.S. It maybe the same nerve that Bravely Default did, which was to say, oh, a, a big budget JRPG. Yes, I want it. Thank you. Even if it isn't kind of what I would necessarily want or or it's not really in line with your with the with the traditional turn-based experience i mean it has a certain look it a certain pedigree it's on a console rather than a handheld not to disparage handhelds but yeah i mean i think that's what made it a a, a real rpg for people unfortunately and i, I think i mean i, I kind of disagree with your bravely default um analogy because i feel like people only cared about this because it was a big budget jrpg on a console when when nino kuni released it was 2013 and the 3DS was getting so many great RPGs. Like we had, uh, that was that was like, I think uh, Fire Emblem um, for the 3DS like launched a month later or something like that. So we were not. It wasn't like we were like in a dry spell. And I, I believe Xenoblade just released that summer too in America. So I don't know. I feel like there was a certain level of production values that made this a real game in some people's eyes that kind of disappointed me you know like i feel like all of the essays like the jrpg is back i was like but it never went anywhere you just only care if it looks really good i think that you're probably right on that front and you're right like the bravely default i think bravely default caught people's attention in the way that it did mostly because it was really old school but also really deep And I believe that game is, it's like, it's a beautiful game with lavish production values and an amazing soundtrack, but it's still not on that console level that will make people stand up and take notice, unfortunately. So what are your hopes for Nino Kuni 2? I'm hoping again that um, Level 5 learns what they did from Yokai Watch, which is essentially Nino Kuni, but much more streamlined. And I'm hoping that the micromanagement is cut down, and I feel like without that DS baggage, this can be a much better game. Because if you remember correctly, the um, the DS game shipped with this book that was full of these spells 
that you would have to consult to actually draw them into the screen. And um, that was a huge part of that game and part of the main appeal, part of the gimmick. But for the PS3 version of Nino Kuni, when you were casting those spells that would, like, you know, they were part of, like, plot-related quests and things like that, all you would do was, like, choose them from a drop-down menu on the TV screen. So, like, I feel like part of the problem with the PS3 Nino Kuni was that they didn't think hard enough about how to make that DS game a console game. So, since this is a console game from the very beginning, I feel like they're starting from the right place. John? I want them to basically just start over from scratch. Like I, um, I respect what they tried to do with the first game, but I'm, I just want something maybe evolved from the combat that they had because it was simple, but it was fun. But I don't really think the monster recruiting mechanic is really going to do them any favors anymore. You're right about that, and it, it's the same as it is in Yokai Watch when it, it should be. You're kind of like just waiting to get lucky to get the monster you right. want, yeah, exactly. basically. And I, I dislike um, that. I want to be more actively recruiting these things instead of like, oh, not, uh, my eighth battle, I finally got this thing. Right. Like, if they're going to have recruitable monsters, I hope it's not just like a random chance in combat. Like, give us something a little bit more meaty to do. But actually, kind of the opposite of what you were going with, Bob, I that the way that they shipped the book with the DS version just that's a really old PC Apple II kind of thing to do and I really wish we would have got that in the US cuz it's such a cool idea and I I kind of want them oh, to Oh, I double. do too. Like if we only got that version with the book, I'd be totally happy well, I'd be and I probably a- absolutely get a lot more out of it. Yeah. And I it I would sort of like to see them double down on that idea. I don't think it's going to happen, but um I don't know. I just want I just want a good solid Build of what they've already been, what they had already done with the first Nino Kuni, but I just want them to ditch the the random monster recruitment. All right, time to move on to the main event, Bloodborne DLC, which arrived. What was it a couple weeks ago at this point? God, time is moving so fast. Two, uh, two weeks? Three weeks? I, I Might have been before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely before Thanksgiving. So, John, you were really keen to be on this episode. You obviously have thoughts on the Bloodborne DLC, so I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Okay. Um, well, first, I was absolutely satisfied with it. I thought it was great. Um, I actually built a new character specifically for it and brought that new character into the DLC way before it was able to handle anything that I was running into. So I, um, I don't know about you, Bob, if you had like taken a, a pre-made character and made something new, but like I, the way you get into it is that you kill an early ish boss, Vicar Amelia, and then you can sort of double back into the, um, the hunter stream, get an item and then, then sort of enter the DLC from there. It's a little puzzly. Um, but I, yeah, it's not nearly as bad as it was in Dark Souls One. Oh, uh, I've seen people complain yeah. about it, and it's honestly, it's honestly not that bad. If you're into Bloodborne, you should be into the way you unlock yes, this absolutely. this area. Yeah. That is a stupid complaint, in my <laughs> opinion. But um, anyway, so I I walked into it pretty under level, thinking that like, okay, I've heard this is hard. I've got two other characters that are way past New Game Plus, but I I want to really just kind of soak this in for the first time. And it's hard, man. Those first starting areas are they will they'll let you know right away whether you're you're able to hang with this stuff or not. And especially once you eventually make it to that first boss, it's it's pretty funky. But it is. And uh, if okay, so I, I may get the lore wrong, and please crucify me if I do. But I believe this this uh, this area is like a, it takes place in the past, maybe or like a past version. Yes. Ellipses? Okay, yes. Mark? So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna commit to this, but <laughs> what I found was really cool was the fact that um, the human enemies you fight in Bloodborne outside of the uh, the quote unquote hunters are just like these brain dead zombies that are like barely human and just sort of like grasping at the last threads of humanity and just lashing out at you, and they're really easy to fight. But in the DLC, it's the other way around. The humans have not completely lost their minds yet, and they're very formidable opponents. So. For throughout the first leg of this DLC, you're fighting nothing but like human opponents that are conceivably as smart as like another human player you would fight in the game. But, but kind of, I'm, I'm going to slightly disagree with that because like when you fight the actual human hunters in the game, they are way, way more difficult. They react faster. They'll back off of you when they need to heal and stuff like that. So I found the the hunter opponents, especially early on, are a really good middle ground between 
the same quote unquote hunters of, of the, the base game that right. they, they attack and release, they, they defend in very interesting ways, but they're, they're not that smart, but they're certainly better, smarter than the average bear, I guess. Like, I do agree with you there. They're not as smart as the named hunters that will right. show up. But they are much more difficult than the oh, yeah. standard humans or semi-humans you would fight towards the beginning of the game. And there, some of them are way stronger than others, too. And yeah. the, the game doesn't tell you when that happens. So, like, um, when I finally got beefy enough to go in there and take on some of these guys, um, I was using Ludwig's Holy Blade, and I could stunlock them. And as long as I could get in, like, four or five hits, I could kill them without them touching me. And then you'd run into a situation where... Um, a random one of these hunters would pop out of nowhere, but his poise was through the roof, and you couldn't pull that stuff off on him. So it's it was really you had to think situationally, and it, usually with Bloodborne and the, the Souls games too, you have to sort of like know what, have a good command of the space around you and the environments. But like you can't just muscle through a lot of the enemies in these games, and these these new hunter characters really teach you that pretty quickly if you've been getting into that habit. The consensus, uh, the consensus seems to be that From Software is really good at making DLC. Oh like, yeah. What is it about? What is it about their DLC that like is so great? Well, I feel that um, they use DLC as a way to address criticisms of the core game. It's not just like, oh, here's some extra stuff we wanted to put in the core game but couldn't fit it in. It's I feel like everything they've made past the release has been like, oh, you didn't want this or you wanted this? Well, we've solved that problem for you. So I feel like this DLC definitely, um, I don't know, I, I do feel like it addresses some core criticisms of the game because it does give you a little more breathing room as far as customization. There are some uh, items and weapons that take advantage of arcane and blood tinge builds more than you would find in the normal game. And it's just a more formidable challenge, I think, than anything in the core game. Um, it's, it's definitely the hardest, but I think the best... Um, section of Bloodborne is, is contained in the DLC. I'd agree with that. Um, mostly with the... I was happier that they kind of addressed the way that builds work, and I actually made an arcane build specifically because I knew that the like weapons like the, the Holy Moonlight Sword and stuff like that were probably going to be arcane-based, so I, that's one of the things I really wanted to test. And one of the bigger, kind of weirder criticisms about the game is that there just weren't enough weapons in it to begin with. And I've always kind of call that a little bit baloney because even though there are, there are maybe not as many weapons as like a Souls game, they're all practical and useful, but the the DLC gives you tons of new stuff. Um, I, I can't remember what the count was, but there's like nine or ten new new weapons, which in in scope of the base game, that's that's kind of a lot. So Yeah, because they all they all transform. Right. Yeah. And they're all and they're all pretty useful with a variety of builds. I mean, like certain stuff is obviously going to be better than others if you're skill or strength or whatever. But um, the DLC makes interesting weapons and kind of like rejiggers some of the environments to to be fun and new. But I really think that the best part about it was just how it catapulted the difficulty way up in certain sections and. <laughs> usually I'm not really a big fan of like make this harder it makes it better but like um, it really made you I there were a lot of situations in the boss encounter specifically where like I had to think a little bit more tactically than twitch reflexy as I would in like the base game with some of the bosses um, I don't know Bob what did you think about that yeah, the difficulty was great because um, even like six years after playing Demon Souls, there's nothing I like more than opening a shortcut in a From Software RPG, and uh, that that middle section of this DLC, which is like a like an abandoned like Bloodborne era hospital or like a ward, is just this intensely dense, packed building with all of these like secret passages and different staircases, and you're just constantly like making your way up, making progress and unlocking stairways and elevators and things like that so you can make e easier progress on a later attempt. And that is so intensely rewarding because it's a constant struggle because the enemies can take away like half of your health bar in one hit throughout the entire section. And I was over-level for this section. I, I, I feel like this is like a, a, a pre-end game uh, section of Bloodborne, even though you can access it much, much earlier than that. 
and it was terrifying. That level yeah. was so creepy. Um, it, it, it totally evokes the Tower of Latria from yes, uh, Demon absolutely. Souls, and that was the that was the mission statement from uh, the director the entire time. Like that is what we want to do with Bloodborne: evoke that atmosphere specifically. And this is this is the perfect expression of the Tower of Latria from Demon Souls in this game. It feels like their version of it, actually. Is that the one with the Cthulhu, like, mind flares? Yes. Yes. Oh my god, that one. (laughs) Yeah. I walked in there and I died, and that was fun. (laughs) That was my least favorite probably my least favorite level of that game, but Not, Mm. wait, you, you, you like the Valley Defilement more? Um, I think it's I think it's easier to handle, honestly, now that mm, I've been through Demon's Souls. I really like, hate the Valley Defilement. Oh, it's, it's terrible. It's lousy. <laughs> but I just I think from like a, the pure visual standpoint and and art direction and what they were doing with the Tower of Latria, especially three two, that is creepy and weird. Yeah, for sure. John, um, you're kind of down on Bloodborne. I, I remember the last time we talked, you were kind of down on Bloodborne. If, or that might be somebody else. No. Am I wrong? No, no. You, you're very high on Bloodborne. Yes, I, there are things that I, I don't <laughs> like about Bloodborne. I don't really like the Chalice Dungeons at all. But um, I don't think anybody likes the Chalice oh, Dungeons. They're, 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 they're okay. They're not god awful. I just think they were a good idea implemented badly. Yeah, I, I feel like you're not rewarded very well. And um, my no. friend Gary Butterfield uh, has a podcast called uh, Not Watch Out for Fireballs, but uh, Bonfireside Chat, and he he's been struggling with the dungeons to talk about them and. Really, the biggest problem is that your reward for beating a dungeon is access to another dungeon, which is a terrible cycle. Like, yeah. I, mean, I mean, you get you get certain named weapons here and there, but like they don't give you enough of an incentive to do these things that are often very, very much too hard. Yeah, and like the only thing with those named weapons is that they're the exact same weapons you've already picked up, just with different gem loadouts. So it's it's really, I don't want to say your mileage is going to vary with that stuff because it's you're, you're they're just not that worth it, but. If you're really the kind of person that trophy hunts, you've got no choice but to get into the, the chalice dungeons, and there's really no other benefit to it. Unless, and that um, should really teach you a lesson about the value of trophy trophies. Trophies, right. <laughs> yeah, like, you, you messed up. Don't do this. But I love the base game. Um, I, You know, with a lot of the front software stuff, especially Demon Souls and the first Dark Souls, boss encounters were sort of gimmicky in that like there was a, there was always one specific way that you could really just barrel through a boss fight like the um the tower knight in in demon souls is a good example you get around him you hack his feet up he'll fall over a couple of hits to the head and it's done and then in um in demon or the the first dark souls the Taurus demon you could climb up on the battlement you could fall on his head outrun him and just run back and do it all over again Bloodborne takes all of that stuff away with its boss encounters, so essentially it makes it, um, it forces you to learn the fights instead of learn interesting ways to kill it and, and be safe about it. And I really like that about it, even though I'm kind of lousy at it. And it, it took a lot of work for me to get through some of those. And, and I think the, um, the online portions of Bloodborne weren't really as good as, as the previous game, so it was harder to kind of draw people into it, which, not to sidetrack, but that, that's another really good thing that they did with Patch 1.07, I think, the, the newest one, where they um, they put in AI characters in front of a lot of bosses in the base game that you can they call did, in, yeah. which I think really solved a, a few problems, but... The bosses are like you have to go toe to toe with a lot with most of them, and it, that makes the game really, really interesting and, and demanding on your skill. And I, I love that about it. Yeah, one thing that I noticed about Bloodborne was even when I called in somebody to help, it wasn't necessarily a given that I would be able to take out a boss because you really have to be on your toes because it's quite possible that you're going to get wrecked by a boss in relatively short order. Even with uh, even when you're double teaming them, it can become uh, uh, it, it really it, it's a fight. It, it's not a well do this and then you got and then they're done and you're good. So yeah, Bloodborne. What I've played of it, and I have not played as much as you guys, but I really enjoyed what I liked uh, what I played of it. Um, it's. I hate using this word. It's a lot more streamlined than previous games in the series. It's, it's definitely a different take, but I, I think in the end, its its biggest strength, I suppose, is its atmosphere and it's just its general look. Um, it's a really creepy game, <laughs> yeah. And it 
it sure, really yeah. stands out in my memory. Um, one of the things that I dislike about AAA games is so many of them just, it, it almost like they come from the big box of video game art tropes. And even games like The Witcher, which is a very attractive game, it's like, yes, um, we're going back to that typical fantasy look. Like, it, it, it's like they draw on a few buckets of different fantasy looks. And Dark, Dark Souls and Bloodborne just have this distinct look to them that I've always really enjoyed. You know, now that we're talking about it, like, I think From Software sort of had to work their way into, into Bloodborne's aesthetic. Because, like, Demon Souls and, Dark, and the first Dark Souls are, are very much kind of that dark fantasy thing. And, like, they, they certainly set a tone, but I think if most, most AAA developers, or, or not even AAA developers, if most developers went into a pitch meeting with a publisher and said, okay, we're going to do a weird H.P. Lovecraft faux-Victorian horror game, action game, they would probably be <laughs> laughed out of the room. That's true, yeah. I, I think they sort of had to like earn their, their place with, with doing something like that, and it totally paid off. I mean... Yeah, this, it, this game really doubles down on the Lovecraftian elements of the Dark Souls series to the point where I think it is actually the best Lovecraft game, period. Even though it does not cite him... Or mention him in any way. I, I feel like this is if you like Lovecraft, that kind of horror. This game evokes that perfectly more than any percent. other explicit <laughs> Lovecraft game. Is it that is it that big risk to invoke Lovecraft in a video game, given how tightly uh, video games have been tied toward the look and the monsters and and how so many like gamers are always going on about Cthulhu, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think so because the the main appeal of Lovecraft is that the horror is indescribable and, and knowing it and seeing it is so terrible that it drives you mad. So it's very hard to communicate visually what a Lovecraft thing should be because it's supposed to be just like, again, indescribable and like your brain cannot comprehend the horrors that are being reflected at your eyes. So I think Bloodborne does an excellent job at that just in terms of enemy design mm-hmm. and boss design and using your knowledge of the world to seriously make your character lose his mind. And I think getting back to the DLC, they really get into that very well. Like the way that um, a few of the bosses that you fight, um, the first one, Ludwig's the first one, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ludwig and um, Vicar Lawrence, which is sort of of kind of a secret boss of the DLC, they are named characters that that sort of like the shadow of them are looming over the base game but like when you actually see them and what they sort of evolved into especially ludwig it's really terrifying it's very bizarre like and it it sort of ties into the lore with how they look like ludwig opens his mouth before the fight and his his mouth is covered with eyeballs and it looks like teeth but they're really eyes and that is freaky and weird and um, it kind of hits on what you just said. Like, this is an indescribable horror. Like, who thinks of these things? Well, obviously, there are guys in Japan sitting in front of computers drawing them, so they're thinking of them. But it's um, it's made to be so terrifying that it drives you crazy. And some of the, the monsters and Cat, if you keep playing the end of Bloodborne, you're going to run into monsters where this actually happens, where they're, they get a hold of you, you, you frenzy, and you lose most of your health because you're going insane. And that's, that's a, <laughs> um, I guess, the most realistic way, question mark, of, <laughs> of handling a situation like that. If I would see a walking giant brain with teeth, I'd probably go a little nuts, too. <laughs> and I, yeah. I think it's not even like a part of the game system sometimes where um, they will create a, something that is so visually intimidating and just visually incomprehensible that you will have to fight it a few times to even understand what it is and like what, what it can yeah. do to you. Yeah, yeah. So um, fascinating. Sort of getting back to, to place and, and setting and what makes From so good at it, um, I think part of it is their use of silence because most of their games have very little music and that, that really invokes a sort of terrifying feeling of loneliness that a lot of other video games just don't do. Like most, especially most AAA games, there's, I mean, not constant sound, but there's constantly at least a low murmur of music in almost every video game that you'll play. But 
the from stuff uses silence and sound sound design very very effectively so when you when music actually comes up you know that you're sort of in the shit at that moment something's going about to go down and i had just recently played um lords of the fallen finally and it is it's a very earnest dark souls ripoff but it's it's absolutely a dark souls ripoff but um as i was playing i mean the mechanics are really similar but like the setting and the tone and it's 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 felt totally like dark souls for the gears of war set with just it, big it is a very dude bro uh yeah big <laughs> screaming like, bald guys and your uh your your hero is just a, a bald space marine kind of type yeah in like warcraft armor with huge yeah. shoulders and huge hands and um like the music was constantly in the background and like there's there's just a steady stream of dialogue and just grunting and screaming and it just it didn't I give them credit for for really taking a shot at making a game like that but it it just doesn't evoke that sort of um quiet terror that the from guys have, and Miyazaki specifically have really figured out. Well, this is a question that we've come to a few times. Bloodborne is kind of going by the wayside at the end of the year. We're going to get Dark Souls 3 at the beginning of the year. Uh, it's strictly speaking, Bloodborne's not part of the Dark Souls series, but it is part of kind of the the overall, I guess, milieu, the franchise, whatever you want to call it. How do you guys feel about the fact that we're officially in annual release territory? <laughs> oh, well, I feel like, I don't know how, maybe just no one is sleeping or whatever, <laughs> but they've been able to succeed uh, despite the scheduling of their game releases. Like, uh, as much as I criticize Assassin's Creed and other games like Call of Duty for being annual, I, I don't know if they're just playing it safe or it really is that difficult to, you know, try to change things up. But uh, From Software just has never let me down. Even if people hate Dark Souls 2, I still love it. Um, I, I, I've not, I, I've yet to play something from them that felt like undercooked or, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm at a loss for words here, but I've yet to play something from them that disappointed me since Demon Souls. I uh, think we need to address, maybe this isn't the, the place for it, but I think we should address the Dark Souls 2 hate. Like I saw that in the comments when you wrote that, oh, when you yeah. wrote that article, <laughs> like what the hell people? I don't like, get it. I don't get it. I... I like the first game better, and if, if I'm being honest, I think Demon's Souls is probably my favorite of all mm. of them, but um, Dark Souls 2 is the most, it's the friendliest, from a mechanical standpoint, it's the best experience, and it's, even if you don't like, <clears throat> excuse me, how they've sort of taken out some, some things that made the previous games difficult, like item weight, and the way that forging happens, or whatever, that doesn't really take away ultimately from the game just because you got to drop yeah. stuff off at, at a, once an hour or something like that at a stockpile guy doesn't necessarily make the game worse. I, I don't get it. I feel like with Dark Souls 2, it is a fallacy in that they are giving one guy uh, all the credit or too much credit, rather, because yeah. like uh, Miyazaki is very important to the um, overall Dark Souls universe and how the games feel, and he did have a supervisory role. The gaming landscape now. I mean, that yes, was, of course, he's, he's like the messiah, and he was a supervisor on Dark Souls too. But I feel like we, uh, the people who are really responsible for things we like the most, we don't know their names, and we probably never will. Yeah, like uh, Resident Evil Four is one of my favorite games of all time, and uh, it's not just Shinji Mikami. I was looking at uh, recently all of the people who worked on that game, and they're all at Platinum Games now. So it's like no wonder I like Platinum Games. <laughs> they all worked on my favorite game of all time almost. So. It's not just Mikami. It's not just uh, Miyazaki. They're very important, but there are people that we don't realize are making a lot of these choices that will never get credit. Or, I mean, they'll get, they'll get credit, but we just won't know their names. Well, before we wrap up, I have a game to recommend to you guys that you should check out. And it's... I hope it's not 60 hours long because uh, <laughs> I've got a lot of those right now. More like 10 hours. Okay, that's perfect. It's, strictly speaking, I guess, maybe not an RPG. It's a tactics game. It came out ye yesterday. Oh, as I know what this is. I saw recording. you playing it. Yeah. It's called SteamWorld Heist, and it's outstanding. It's not anything like SteamWorld Dig. It's a spiritual successor, and it has pretty much everything that I could ever want 
in a game. It has robots. It's in space. It's turn-based. It's a lot like XCOM. And it has a really distinct and fun and personality-filled art style. Um, I think it's actually one of the best 3DS games of the year. It's certainly one of the best tactics games of the year. And it, it, you can read my review over on US Gamer. But suffice it to say, I really, really like it. Um, if you're looking for RPG elements, um, they're actually a fair number. Your characters do level up. They do progress. Uh, they have certain abilities that give them a role in the party. Um, you build up a party of up to four characters that you can bring on to a given mission. Who, And they all fill specific roles like leader, tank, that kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of weapons. I was kind of worried that there wouldn't be enough variety to it. But it works really, really well. Um, and at right now, sixteen ninety nine, not a bad value um, for a game that could keep you busy for between 20 and 30 hours. Uh, I think it's fantastic. So I don't know if I'm going to get a chance to talk about it again, but it's definitely going on my top 10 games of the year list. So check it out, SteamWorld Heist. And let's wrap this thing up. You can find Acts of the Blood God, as always, on iTunes and on Stitcher. Please leave a review. Um, we're going to keep reading uh, mailbag questions and that sort of thing over on US Gamer. We're wrapping up our 2015. We're doing our 2015 in review. And next week, we are going to be kicking off the first part of our year in review in RPGs on Acts of the Blood God, mostly bringing back all of the guests that I've had on over the past year and asking them the pertinent question, what was your favorite RPG? I'm sure that we're going to get a, a nice wide variety of responses. And I guess you're going to have to find list, wait to find out what my favorite RPG was. Um, may, maybe SteamWorld Heist, if, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to do that. But in any case, guys, do you have anything to plug John? Um, nothing really to plug. I suppose you can follow me on Twitter and be disappointed because I don't really tweet too much, but um, I'm at John underscore learned. Excellent. And Bob? Oh, yeah. I, I am a content creator and making too much content, so you can find me on uh, Twitter as Bob Servo. Uh, of course, I also co-host the podcast uh, Retronauts. You can find that at retronauts.com and usgamer.net every week. Uh and I also, this is not video game related, but you might care about it. It's the uh, the podcast Talking Simpsons, a chronological expo- sorry, chronological chronological ex- chronological chronological exploration of the Simpsons. Uh, we're currently in season two, and you can find that on LaserTimePodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm sorry, it's been a long day. Speaking but- of LaserTime, I was just on LaserTime. Oh, yeah. Um, I was I did a big episode about the Star Wars Expanded Universe, which. I know way, 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 way too much about. So yeah, I, that gave me a real insight into your uh, childhood. That episode. <laughs> you mean the fact that I was lonely and deprived and obsessive yes. and nerdy? I obsessed over different things, and they they come out in different ways. But I totally, I totally like identified like, oh, that's what Cat was into. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. So go listen to me talk about Star Wars books for uh, an hour and a half or so. I, I think you'll like it, and. Also, I was also on Retronauts recently, so and it was definitely JRPG related, so I'm not going to spoil it, but that will come out in um February, I think. We were originally going to we were originally going to like tackle like a couple of topics, but the first topic ended up being so big that we had oh, to basically that'll be, be out like, really soon actually. Yeah, that should be out before the new year. Oh, well, excellent. So you can look something? forward to it. Yeah, those are my favorite re- retronauts episodes. When like you guys like take <laughs> when like a larger topic becomes a smaller topic, but you guys are just so into it that uh, it's the, the insane amount of depth. That's those are the retronauts episodes I love the most. Oh, cool! Thank you. There's gonna be a lot of those soon. We just recorded an entire uh, right. three months worth of retronauts <laughs> over the last weekend. So get ready, everybody. Final note: I am playing Legend of Heroes: Trails of Cold Steel. So I will probably have lots of thoughts about that game relatively soon, as soon as I can 
make an episode about it. It may not be till the new year, but at the very least, I wouldn't mind getting somebody from Exceed on the show to talk about it. But until then, we'll be back next week. And for Bob and John and myself, we'll see you next week. And until then, happy adventuring. Happy adventuring.